Today's scripture is uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 to 47, 33. Uh, you can find on your Bible on page 969. Jesus told another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the wheat also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seeds in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and put them up? No, he answered. Because where you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will let the harvesters first collect the wheat and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a master seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a, about 60 pounds of flour until it walked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciple came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who stole the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom, everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the, their father. Who has, whoever has ears, let them hear. The second passage is Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 to 18. You can find on page 1160. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's games. For our struggle is not against flesh or blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with a, with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, and the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet, fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This is the word of God. Let's say a quick prayer over the scripture. God, we are so grateful for your word of truth that speaks life to us. And so we pray over this reading of scripture today. We pray over this conversation about evil. And we pray that your spirit would come and remind us how to resist it. We thank you for all your faithful servants who have blessed this world and kept the precious news of your gospel fresh to us. And we pray that we would hear it again today and be reminded of your love. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Even though I grew up being surrounded by church and in a Christian family, I was surrounded by a lot of good, and we didn't talk about evil a lot. And for a long time, I had no idea. I did not realize that there are people in the world who, because of their life experience, actually find it easier to believe in evil or the devil than to believe in a good God. Just like some of my friends in Latvia from that story about the corner house. And maybe that's been your experience, or maybe somebody else's you know as well. So today we're going to spend some time walking through the topic of evil, and eventually we'll get to how, as followers of Jesus, we can resist evil. And so I know that some of you have spent some time thinking about this already. Many of you have been Christians for a long time, but I pray that as we walk through this today that you'd prayerfully consider some, maybe some of the people that you're going to invite to Alpha, but like, how would you talk about that with them? And maybe there's some things that I'll mention today or some things that you're thinking through about how you would talk about this, the topic of evil, and how to resist it with those friends. So Christians have always believed in the devil. There's no question from Scripture and historical accounts in the gospel that evil is operative in the world and working against the advancement of God's redeeming work. Evil or the devil is impacting humanity, whether or not we're able to acknowledge it. And so Bella read for us the scripture of Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds today. And in that scripture, 
Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven in the scenario of a field where wheat and weed seeds are growing up. But the particularly tricky thing about this and what's growing is the type of weed that Jesus describes here. There's a type of weed car called darnel that was poisonous. And the thing about it is that when it sprouts up, it looks exactly like wheat. And so it was tricky because until it fully matured, you couldn't tell what it was. And it was dangerous enough at that time that the Roman government actually outlawed it from being planted in another person's field. And then later in the story, prompted by his disciples, Jesus explains that the, the landowner is the son of God. And he knows that the enemy has planted the weeds. But interestingly, the Son of Man isn't concerned with fully removing each evil, uh, each individual who is evil immediately. He's more concerned with the harm that could happen to the good if the evil was forcibly removed. And so this is like the time we're living in right now, a time where the good that Jesus, that the Father has planted is growing up but it's also growing up with evil, and it's at risk of being tangled up with it. We also see that in God's timing, God is the one who will come and who will deal with that evil and who will bring his justice. So that's just one snapshot from the Bible that summarizes the reality of our world and the evil operating in it. But there's a lot more that scripture has to say so to help us understand evil. We're just going to do a skim today to be reminded about that. The scripture mentions evil a fair number of times. If you like numbers, I'm not going to tell you the Hebrew word, but the Hebrew word in the Old Testament is mentioned just like over 660 times. It's a good number. And then in the New Testament, there's a few Greek words. Um, you can add about 100 more times to that. So that's a fair significant chat about evil. Um, in the Old Testament, I think it's fair to say that it commonly talks about evil as the opposite of good. It's the opposite or against God's will or laws or ways of righteousness. And oftentimes it'll talk about there's two paths that you can lead your life, a good path or an evil path, a path towards God and righteousness or a path away from that. One of the first talks about evil you'll know is at the beginning of Genesis, between chapters 2 and 3, it talks about the tree of good and evil. And we have that dichotomy already set up for us. If you read through Judges and Samuel and Kings, you'll see a number of history reports. And you'll see really great stories where leaders were good and they followed the good way of God. And then you'll see a number of stories where they did what was evil in God's eyes. So again, choosing good or bad. And the Psalms and Proverbs are also excellent places to find more of that talk about good and evil in that way. Evil is first personified as Satan in the story of Job. And a little bit later, it's mentioned again in First Chronicles. But the personified picture of, of the devil <clears throat> is not really our stereotypical cultural image of the devil. I'm sure you're familiar with that. There's no pitchfork or horns or anything like that, crazy red tail. Um, the literal word used to describe him is the accuser. And if you know the story of Job, you know he shows up to make accusations of Job and try to convince him to tempt him to turn away from being a righteous man of God. In the New Testament, there are a few more ways that start to begin to talk about evil. 
And one of the ways Nikki Gumbel summarizes that the New Testament's description of evil is as a triple alliance. There is the evil around us, and the evil within us, and evil above us. So we could say that the enemy or the evil around us is often referred to as the world. In Romans 12, it says, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you can prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And then later, in the writer of 1 John says, Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. We can be impacted in this kind of world, evil operating around us through things that happen to us in culture, also tangible institutions, whether you can name it or it feels like a spirit, but also people around us impacting us in different ways. So the second way, the enemy within us is often referred to as the flesh. And if you've done any scripture study, you'll know that it doesn't usually refer to the flesh physically being evil, but rather that It's the evil desires in our hearts that can stir from within us, so the enemy within us. Matthew 26 says, where Jesus says, watch and pray that so you will not fall into temptation. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's a good example of that. Or when Paul in Romans talks about the sin living within him. Or later in Galatians when he says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. So all those thoughts that stir up on our head, they can influence our actions and inactions in the world. And these desires, they can be selfish and detract us from loving others. That's the, the enemy within us. And then the enemy above us, more of a broader spirit, but also the, you can just name it as the devil, the enemy above us. So we see the story of Jesus being tempted by the evil one, Jesus being tempted by the devil, the spirit. Um... He teaches, and later Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to be delivered from evil, that spiritual power. And a little bit later on in the letters, Paul talks about the powers and the principalities, this even greater image of spiritual forces working against good. And if you want to read a little bit more about that, I think Phil might have mentioned the author before, but Walter Wink is a very interesting author to read more about spirituality of powers and principalities. So as I talk and as I prepare it, I kind of wonder how you've, in your life, experienced evil. Have you experienced spiritual warfare or any kind of evil fighting its way into good things in your life? And are you even comfortable talking about spiritual warfare or evil acting in the world? If your background is anything like mine, I'm not surprised if you don't have a lot of experience talking about naming evil. It's not something that usually comes up at the water cooler at work, and if you don't work at a church, you're not usually talking about it all the time. (laughs) Mostly we talk about good, I'll say, but um, this summer, one of the books that I've been reading for my own spiritual formation has been Dallas Willard's Renovation of the Heart. And in one chapter, he reflects on his observations that our culture lacks the capacity to name evil or sin as a reality afflicting society. And I think it's good food for thought as we think about discussions we might have about spiritual realities with our neighbor, especially ones who've grown up in the West, but probably others as well. And so here are some words from Dallas Willard. 
He says, in our present thought, in our present thought world, the horror is hidden. Evil is hidden. Sin as a condition of the human self is not available as a principle of explanation for those who are supposed to know why life goes as it does and to guide others. For example, why do around half of American marriages fail? Or why do we have massive problems with substance addiction and with the moral failures of public leaders? Those who are supposed to know are lost in speculations about causes while the real sources of our failures lie in choice and the factors at work in it. He says choice is where sin dwells. And that really reflects some of the Old Testament teaching and stories we take in, even the choice that Adam and Eve make to eat that, eat that fruit. He continues saying, our social and psychological sciences stand helpless before the terrible things done by human beings. But the warpness and wrongness of the human will is something we cannot admit into serious conversation. It's like we're farmers who diligently plant crops but cannot admit the existence of weeds and can only think to pour on more fertilizer. Similarly, the only solution the secular world offers to human problems today is education. And he says that in quotation marks. He goes on to talk about, well, what kind of education do we actually, are we offered in the world? I'm, I'm very glad for my education, no dissing on education. But is it enough for people to know and understand the right thing to do to bring about goodness to all the corners of the world? And there's another writer, Wendell Berry, who's an American poet, adds, how is that we can know so much and do so much and live so badly? I don't know about your life, but there are strange situations that I've encountered that scripture, the talk of scripture about evil really has given me some deeper understanding of what is happening, and even what I can pray about. I was thinking about, like, what is the rational cause that brings about trouble and conflict and distraction when a church community or a good ministry is just about to go into amazing spiritual renewal? Like, why does that happen? Or what's the education piece that explains how halfway through an awesome summer camp last summer, a number of kids got these really annoying, small, distracting injuries, and another camper's arm was injured, and the morale of the campers was dipping, and all the good work that had happened was just like a little bit at risk at that point. Or the rational explanation for the voices in my head, maybe you experience that, that stir up every once in a while, especially on the cusp of something new or important happening. Things that just begin to drown my confidence and insecurity, maybe drain me of energy to follow up with important conversations. Maybe convince me that the work I'm doing is more harmful than hurtful. Or even thinking that there's nothing I can do about a particular situation. It's like this mass wave of self-doubt. But between what I've found in New and Old Testaments, what I've experienced and learned in the world, the evidence for me is more and more convincing that evil is a real factor in human life, around, within, and above. The great thing is that Christianity has answers to these areas of life and human understanding that the broader culture is lacking. So let's talk a little bit about how the devil operates, a little bit about tactics. You could probably name these for me. I know a lot of you know these things. The first one I'll mention is doubt. 
One of the ways we experience the devil is through doubt. There's a lot of things, important things in life that require faith. But the devil tries to thwart our faith through telling us lies or leading, leading questions that can stir up doubt. If you think again back to the example of early Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve and the fruit and the serpent, the serpent comes in and he says to Eve, did God really say? This is like leading question and starts to, to stir up some doubt. And she begins to question her experience of God's relationship the conversations they've had, and his goodness. And when you read that story, that whole story unfolds as a perfect example of how doubt and the devil operate. If you flip forward to the New Testament, in Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends, the voice of the Father says, you are my beloved with whom I am well pleased, my son. And then Jesus is led into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. And there the devil taunts him, questioning him, are you really the son of God? And the devil tries to lead Jesus to question and doubt his identity as the beloved son of God. At times we might be led to doubt God's identity, his goodness, his fatherly love and faithfulness, depending on the circumstances of our lives. But we may also be led to doubting ourselves and the identity that God names over us as his beloved children. There was one kid who we met at camp last year, and I'm so glad we got to see him this year. Because last year at camp, it was like this big cloud was hanging over his head. Just, he was just something was happening. He was not a happy kid. He's tall and awkward and going through puberty. But on top of that, it was just kind of something dark was hanging over him. But he had a really great time at camp, amazingly. I didn't think that would happen for him. Um, and by the end of the week, he had actually made a decision to follow Jesus. And as we caught up with some of the leaders, we learned a little bit more what happened after that. We learned that through the months after, there was a significant time cap between the camp and his baptism, which I'm so grateful happened. But this gap wasn't just because of an increased time of learning or discipleship. It was actually a time where he later explained to some of the leaders that he was experiencing major doubt. He was beginning to doubt his experience of God at the camp, whether his choice and commitment that he made to follow Jesus at that time was really real or, or authentic enough and meaningful enough. And he kept all that inside for like months before he talked to any of the leaders about that. The devil wants our doubts to lead us away from our loving Father. But the truth is that we can't be taken away. <clears throat> the truth that cannot be taken away from us is that we are children of God, deeply loved, created in God's image for his unique purposes. The second tactic of the devil is temptation. We see that in the scriptures, Satan is sometimes referred to as the tempter. We know that everyone is tempted, even Jesus is tempted, even God himself. Um, but the thing is that Jesus was tempted, but he was still without sin. It's a normal experience no matter where you are or what you believe in to experience temptation. But the important thing is to remember that there's a difference between sin and temptation. Temptation only becomes sin, you know, if we act on it. Also important to remember is that it's the devil who tempts us. It's never God. 
Scripture teaches and James writes in the New Testament, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. A third way that the devil impacts us is deception. He's sometimes referred to as the father of lies. In the Garden of Eden scene, again, beginning of beginning of Genesis. The devil doesn't just ask questions to cause doubt, but he full-on lies. He says, you certainly won't die if you eat that fruit. God knows that when you eat it, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This is not true, but he says this, like taunting them. You should do this. It won't hurt you. God doesn't want the best for you, and you can actually make a better decision on your own. Maybe you're familiar with the Romanian pastor and writer Richard Wormbrandt. Do you know Richard? Some people are shaking their heads. If you don't, I would really highly recommend doing a little quick Google search. His story overlaps with our Latvian friend's history because he was a survivor of Soviet prison. He survived 14 years of imprisonment and torture. And he offers this little example of deception and lie, how that can operate. He says, the language of love and the language of seduction are the same. The one who wishes a girl for a wife and the one who wishes her for only a night both say the words, I love you. But Jesus has told us to discern between the language of seduction and the language of love and to know the wolves clad in sheepskin from the real sheep. God does want the best for us. He sends us his spirit to help us actively discern our way between what is true and good and what is false and harmful, and you can ask for his help on that. The last thing I'll mention is that the devil is an accuser. I mentioned before that this is one of the names that the Bible uses to call him, and he can lead us to things like self-condemnation, stealing away our self-worth, and causing us to forget the promise and truth that in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation, that through Christ the Spirit sets us free, and we are free from the law of sin and death. That, that's what we proclaimed over each other this morning already. One piece about accusation is just remembering the difference between conviction and condemnation. Because if we have done something wrong or we let our minds or hearts wander from God's ways, we may experience conviction. But this conviction will beckon us to turn and to be given, to be forgiven, and that is the Holy Spirit's work. However, the voice of condemnation or accusation, that is of the devil telling you there's no hope or no point, maybe reminding you repetitively that you messed up, or how could anyone forgive you? Or how could anyone love you after that? Those kind of words are accusations and lies, and they do not have the power to separate you from the loving mercy and forgiveness found in the cross of Jesus Christ, because through him all sins are forgiven and were made new. So in light of all that, maybe you or your neighbors might have a question like, If we experience transformation through faith in Jesus, then why are we still struggling with this kind of temptation or this kind of evil, struggle with evil? I just wonder if you take a few seconds to think about how you might answer that to somebody asking you that question. I'll say their question again. If we experience transformation through faith in Jesus, 
then why do we still struggle with temptation? You can share your thoughts with a friend after the service. If we look back to the parable of the weeds, again, we see that Jesus paints this picture of the kingdom of heaven. And the field is a picture of the world as we experience it now. God is present, but it's before a time of final judgment. And there's plenty of good, but also evil planted in the midst of it. And at this time, God is most concerned about those good seeds growing and growing well. But before Jesus gets around to explaining the parable of the weeds to his disciples, he shares two more small vignettes that are some of my favorite of like seed-like things growing. The first is the mustard seed. It's something so tiny that grows into a marvelous bush and brings shelter and a perch for birds. And the second is the yeast. And the woman who sprinkles those little grains into 60 pounds of flour. And that flour could expand to feed like about 100 people. Just one woman working with a little bit of kingdom goodness 60 pounds of flour is transformed and turned into life-giving food. So there's evil still active in the world in that field. But the good, the good that we see in these two pictures is so powerful and amazing. And we know that as the gospel story unfolds, Jesus becomes our entryway into God's kingdom. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he has paid the price for every sin, every way we could succumb to evil every way that leads us apart from God, evil has been defeated and victory won. Because of Christ, there's no need for us to face the fire at the end of that parable. Through Jesus' blood shed on the cross, he's made our peace with God, and we will be free from accusation from God if we continue in faith firmly and do not move from the hope that's held out to us in the gospel. If we continue in faith, just like as the parables describe, we're in the world in an in-between time where God is surely caring for us, but where evil still lingers and a final judgment is yet to happen. There's a struggle that is still present and real. A tension between good and evil is still present. 